Welcome to Build and Learn. My name is Colin. And I'm CJ. And today we're going to talk about the Stack Overflow developer survey from 2022. Yeah, this is a super exciting thing. I don't think I participated in it, but I saw the results and I think it's going to be fun to dive into. Yeah, I, I did. I did fill it out this time around. I think I've probably only done it like three times in the past, but it's always super interesting to see what people are thinking about in terms of tooling, what they're doing in terms of learning, like how much they're getting paid for each stack. Like all of those data points are so, so interesting every year. I, I kind of I get really excited when it comes out. So I'm pumped to, to go through it. I'm also really interested to hear just your thoughts about the results too. Yeah. Before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about like kind of meta about the podcast. So this is episode two. We recorded episode one. It's been a little while now and you did all the editing. I'd love to kind of just chat about like what that was like, especially for people out there who might be interested in podcasting on their own. We're recording this with Zencaster. We recorded the first one in Zoom just because we had some tech difficulties. And I think this is going to be night and day difference, but what, what kinds of things did you see when you were editing that episode? Anything that you noticed? So I have edited hundreds of my own videos before, and I've edited probably like 10 podcast episodes before. And I am always uncomfortable at seeing myself, but seeing the transcript of my spoken word was like even more uncomfortable because it's like, oh, that is actually the words that I said. And <laughs> yeah. You know, what do we use? For, what do we use for that? Right. Okay. Yeah. So we were the first pass we did in Descript. So Descript, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. This is, we'll have a link in the show notes, which will be a super special link that hopefully will increase our chances of getting access to the new Descript storyboard. But the Descript is this tool that was originally built, I guess, for editing audio. And the way that it works is you kind of drop in an audio or video file. It will transcribe what was said and then allow you to edit as if you're editing a word document. And so like, as you're going through, you can see all of the ums and uhs, and you really, really start to notice the filler words. Mine in particular is so like I will be so, and also like I use like a lot. So in fact, there we go. Right. Yeah. I've noticed that even on zoom calls with, with at work, I will sometimes end sentences with so, and I think that's like a nervous tick or something. And you know, and I, I'm not completely against filler words. I think we'll notice them. I There's some people who like to keep them in. I think it's also there's the kind of people who listen to podcasts and remove all spaces and on 2x speed. And it's like you kind of lose the storytelling element of and like delivery when you do that. I think like Overcast will just let you listen to podcasts at like neck breaking speeds, right? And I'm not trying to be like productive when I'm listening to podcasts. I'm trying to relax. Gotcha, but gotcha, I think gotcha. it's a, it depends, right? Like you wouldn't want to edit out all the filler words if it was like a story or it, it depends, right? If it's an audible and you're listening to ums and ahs, like that would probably be really annoying. But, you know, right there, I think we're just as humans, you, you, you said a few things like we all have filler words and I think we're uncomfortable listening and watching ourselves. And you've done a lot of this. I don't think it gets easier. You just do it right you just yeah it's just fact of life and it's kind of like getting on stage i think a lot of people think that when you do that you eventually just feel fine but i i feel just as nervous getting on stage as i did the first day that i did it you just mm -hmm. have a different experience and tools to, to, to handle it i think right yeah you start to be able to have different uh, mechanisms to regulate your anxiety around what people think about you. And you start to realize that people are thinking more about themselves than what they're thinking about you. And so 
maybe it allows you to relax ever so slightly. Yeah. So we, we, we use Descript. Basically, I dropped it in there and then I there's a tool that lets you auto remove ums and uhs. So I did that first. And maybe you can tell when you're listening back to episode one that it's a little choppy. Maybe that was because of that kind of just like find and replace. Then I applied a filter that comes from Descript called Studio Sound. And this is a tool that will upload all the audio and then run some machine learning stuff inside of Descript's, I don't know, inside of their platform that will try to improve the audio quality, which is just mind blowing. Like if there's echo in your room or if it doesn't sound, you know, rich or chunky enough, like inside of Zencaster in this UI, we can actually see the waveforms of our voices and they're a little bit different, right? My mic is going to be set up a little bit differently than Colin's mic. And as we're talking, those waveforms can be sort of normalized using machine learning and they can also remove background sounds and stuff. So that I think was pretty powerful and listening back to the before and after of just the studio sound application was pretty wild. I did apply and play with a couple different filters, but I think that was the main, the main one. And then I exported it from Descript into GarageBand because I couldn't figure out how to add like nice intro music that faded in and nice intro music that faded out. And I know how to do it with GarageBand. And so that's yeah. where I did. So yeah, found some Creative Commons open free music that you don't have to pay for or whatever. Drop that in the beginning, drop it in the end. And then kind of that's where we landed with this. with episode one. Obviously, I think we'll iterate and improve, but absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, like I think like anything, the first pancake, right? Episode one, we kind of recorded it, assuming we were going to throw it away. We're going to release it. You're listening to episode two now. So this is from the future. Hopefully you've already listened to episode one. I think we're just going to get better about content, you know, keeping the conversation tight. Episode one was also like a rambling of our histories. So enjoy that if you want a little bit of a uh, down memory lane of MySpace and, and all that fun stuff. But yeah, I'm excited that we're doing this and it's only going to get better. And maybe we'll do like a deep dive audio episode in the future where we can really talk about the tools and the gear that we're using. Some of it, you know, you don't need to have, but I think we've kind of accumulated it over the years of doing teaching and, and all that kind of stuff. So we've, we've got that on hand, but let's, let's dive into this stack overflow. Let's do survey. it. There's a bunch of stuff that was surprising a little bit. Some of it was sad. Some of it was hilarious. And so maybe we should start with things we'll go you want to ping pong we'll go back and forth and you want to talk about some of the things that you thought were surprising yeah so before we do that i'm just going to read the kind of headline for this so if you haven't seen this we'll put a, a link in the show notes but they in may of 2022 they surveyed over 70,000 developers to kind of get a sense of how they learn how they level up which tools they use and what they want and i think this is more interesting than the like what do you do? How much do you get paid? It's the when you're not working, how do you learn? Or how do you learn on the job? How do you find things? A lot of the meta work that I think is newer to companies with remote work or hybrid work, right? Because sometimes it's like you just talk to your neighbor and ask them a question. And now you got Slack and Notion and Jira and Confluence, all these different tools, which we've always had. But what is it changing? And I think the fact that this was in May of 2022 is also important just to note as like a marker for history because these surveys are going to come out every year and the the, the results are going to change. So yeah, so that's kind of just level setting there. But did anything, was there anything like that 
kind of hit you as either super surprising or maybe even not surprising? Like you're like, yeah, of course, developers, this, this makes sense. <laughs> so obviously as someone who makes a lot of video content, both for my own YouTube channel and also the Stripe developers channel, one of the first sections I jump to is how people are learning how to code. And this is a, this is the part that is kind of the data point that allows me to go to my, <laughs> my leadership and my bosses and say like, look, people are actually you know, watching videos on the internet and in order to learn how to do technical things. And definitely. yeah, it definitely helps like quantify that. And so a lot of people said they are doing online learning to learn how to code. This was like a combination of a bunch of different stuff between blogs and articles and video. And so around 70% said that they're using online resources, obviously. And then video specifically came in around 59% of respondents. I think Part of that is learning styles. Like some people just learn better through written content. Other people are going to learn better through video and or, you know, this like these kind of interactive courses where you can kind of like run some code, see the output and then try to improve. Something that I thought sort of stood out a little bit is in the survey, it allows you to sort of break down by cohort age or like kind of like look at a question by age. And for video in particular, the the younger the developer is, the more likely they are to use video as a, as a as a resource to learn how to code. And the older you are, the less likely you are to watch video. And so what I like my read on that is that especially the newer generation of devs are kind of finding this online content, whether it's free code camp, the Odin project, AppCat, like all of these different YouTube channels, Traversy Media. There's just massive, massive YouTube channels now that are teaching people how to code. And I think that's become you know, a really core and important resource. So I think yeah. the on that same front, they had what kind of resources you use to learn how to code. And they mentioned technical documentation and Stack Overflow as some of the top two. And I do wonder, like, I've only, to be honest, recently been able to really be able to learn from docs. Mm. I think that when you're learning to code, docs are not always the best way to learn how to code because you need to see somebody use it right like when it says put run this command where am i running this what is it <laughs> supposed to do where am i supposed to see and videos give you that and you know i've i follow some instagrammers i'm not on tiktok but i see the tiktoks that leak into instagram and it's interesting to see like the coding and programming like instagram tiktoks because they're super short so you're not going to really teach anything but they're almost like a Let's get this person interested in a thing to go to my YouTube channel to go watch the full video, right? Or go watch mm -hmm. my Twitch stream where I'm going to build my to-do app in React or whatever that might be. And so I do think like TikTok and Instagram probably has something to do with that video piece. But, you know, again, I, I don't know that these boot camps and, you know, in some cases when you're learning how to code, how do you learn how to learn from docs mm -hmm. is a big part of it. Especially when like if you're learning Ruby, sometimes you find just like the pure Ruby docs. And that's like a terrifying website to end land on if you don't know what you're looking at. <laughs> yeah, I think when, you know, as you build experience, when you land on a readme for an open source project or whatever, and you see the a bash command that says, you know, you should at this point, you should use gem install, whatever. We as Rubyists who've been doing this for 10 years or whatever, we're comfortable and we can like look at that and be like, OK, yeah, here's how I this is how I install it. And then you might see a couple of lines of code that are like, okay, here's how you initialize the client and pass in your API key and then make a make an API call. But as someone who's brand, brand new, who's never interacted with an API before, I think uh, video is an incredibly powerful way to 
both inspire them, but also give them the confidence that they too can absolutely do this by seeing someone else perform exactly the same steps that they need to perform, especially if it's like in a tool that's familiar to them. And so, yeah, as we talk about these other tools, something that has definitely come up in the comments for me is like, people will say, why aren't you using VS code? Why are you doing this like inside of your terminal or whatever? And it's because they literally want the IDE to match what they're seeing. And mm -hmm. in some cases, even like the theme, right? They want the theme to look the same. They want like the right. colors to look the same. They want all the output to be exactly the same, which feels comfortable and is, yeah, confidence inspiring. And yeah, we're all I waiting mean, for that. We're waiting for that CJ VS Code theme to come out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, we, you gotta have the links to your merch and your, your VS Code oh, theme. Gosh, and all we, that. <laughs> I have a theme and I think we're gonna open source it. It's the one we use for the Stripe Developer YouTube channel it, when we're in VS Code, but. Yeah, I mean, I you'd be surprised. I mean, the number of people when I, when I, like I said, like those Instagrams and YouTubes, people, the biggest questions like, what theme are you using? Or like, if I have an autocompleter or something, it's like, oh, how did you do that? It's the extensions and the themes and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, when I, we taught a boot camp here at our co-working space and we used to do everything live and we found that, you know, in like the TAs and myself were being asked the same questions over and over again. And so instead, we inverted it almost like Khan Academy, where we recorded the content so that they could watch it at home. And then the in-person sessions were the office hours. So that way they could watch it. They could stop it. They could rewind it. They could watch it faster. They can skip to the part that they got stuck on. And they can just do that over and over again without feeling like they don't have to worry about like, oh, am I not smart enough because I'm asking a question that no one else in the class is asking. You can just get through it. And then I think I've done this myself, like I'll try to do it without the video, right? Let me see if I really understand this. And then, okay, I didn't get far enough. I need to like go back and watch it again, do it again. Maybe I'll do another sample app and see if I can do it without it. And, uh, you know, that YouTube channel that I made surprisingly got picked up by just people learning Rails. And I think there was like a video series that was like one of, it was like 13 videos. And I think somehow there's the 13th video is not there. And all of the other videos, people are so upset. They're like, where's the last video? And like, well, I can't finish this project. <laughs> like video is pretty compelling to me. It obviously takes a lot of work to produce those things, as you know. But mm -hmm. um, I do think that people are finding it really interesting. I think on the bottom of this list, I see things like programming games and podcasts as being on the lower end of that. You know, we're not teaching you how to code on this podcast. So I don't think that speaks yeah. to anything here. But I think there's been that dream that we're going to have these games like code combat and and some of like mm -hmm. the Disney things that are coming out um, that help you learn through gaming, which maybe that's just early and maybe we're going to see that stuff get better over time. Mm -hmm. Cause I think some of those games can be really fun for kids to get into it. Even if it's maybe you're not learning how to code, but you're starting to get that programmer's mindset and the problem solving mindset. Yeah. So funny enough, the there's a book that's called something like learn to program with Minecraft and so I sat down with the kids last weekend and we set up a Minecraft server and the whole goal was like, let's connect to the Minecraft server with Python. And it took like an hour to get it just set up. You have to like install all these like crazy packages to get it even like to run the right version of the right server. And then once that's up and running, there's several different like Python libraries that interact with different versions of Minecraft. So there's like, you know, the Java edition or the the raspberry pi edition and when i by the time i finally got it set up they were exhausted they were like we don't even oh, yeah. care anymore we're just gonna like go play roblox or some other game I'm like okay 
Well, like least... Minecraft was not designed for that, right? People have right. hacked Minecraft, but it really wasn't designed to teach programming. It would be interesting to have a game with that as like the core principle, right? Yeah. Like it's just designed to be easy to connect to in any language. Like the APIs, maybe it's even literally a web API or something. It'd be kind of, or like, you know, like Twilio, right? It's like, how do we connect <laughs> to a game without knowing all the underlying stuff? Uh, just like we connect to a bank through Stripe without having to know how all that stuff works. I think that mm -hmm. could be interesting. Totally. All right. Should we move? Let's move on from learning how to code. I know you had a bunch of stuff about professional devs. What was surprising to you about how, yeah, how people are working? Yeah, I, I couldn't find what they define as professional developer. Maybe we'll find that as we talk. But 88% uh, of professional developers code outside of with 73% of them coding as a hobby. So I think that means that some of them are doing work like on the side or maybe they're making like a theme for Shopify as like a little side hustle. But a lot of people just do it as a hobby. And I think this does parlay into the how do you learn? You know, some people like to geek out with like, I'm going to go stand up Kubernetes this weekend just for fun. Mm -hmm. Right. And then maybe they're not using it at work. And I think that probably also goes into this question that I really love that they asked, which is like, what do you work with versus what do you want to work with? You might not get to work with the new thing at work. And so people are playing with them on the side. And, you know, as you get to become more senior, it looks like senior devs have more and more influence on what tools and maybe even purchases that they're going to make in their companies. So, you know, some of those hobbies end up turning into influence on the tech product or, you know, or tech stack of, of the company. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, I don't know if this happens to you, but I've been hit up on LinkedIn all the time with people just kind of like salespeople cold emailing and trying to pitch their enterprise software product or whatever. Do you get these these like cold emails? Yeah, when I was at Panty Drop, it was a lot more. It was like every I mean, and like enterprise, I forgot what they're called anymore. The the whole back end for logistics and shipping and all that stuff. It was like almost daily, a little bit less so now, but yeah, I mean, they know that senior devs have some influence. And so if you can, you know, gain, uh, you know, I, I would say like, we'll, we'll talk about Stripe for a second. Like, it's like when people look at the docs for Stripe versus someone, another payment gateway, like a lot of devs are gonna be like, we want to go with that one, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. of what that experience is like, or maybe they have a really pleasant experience using it on the side and they built their own side project with it. And so now when it's like, hey, we need a payment provider at work, like oh we already know how to use this one and you know we there's not a, a big risk in us choosing that hmm. how much do you code outside of work i think that's a, a okay yeah that's an interesting question also there's like this meme going around right i think it's something like <laughs> if you were a, a lawyer no one would come to you and be like you should do a bunch of law outside of work you know like right. spend your weekends but like writing like contracts case, <laughs> contract yeah whatever writing contract like no lawyer is gonna do that right and so we're in a weird industry. I I haven't seen feel... that one. The other one I saw was like, what do you do with your money or something like that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I have also seen it done like with like medicine, like as a doctor, you're not like spending your weekends, like going around and trying to find people to fix. Or well, but all your friends are asking you questions anyway. So I don't That's think true. you need to escape yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I also have encountered lots of devs in my career who are just like, I'm just here to get a paycheck and you know, to go home and live my life outside of the computer and outside of my phone and outside of the internet. And I've also met a lot of other people. And I think maybe both you and I probably fit into this camp, which is more like we 
truly genuinely love this stuff. And so <laughs> we, I don't know, like maybe, yeah, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth, but I, I personally really, really enjoy building things and experimenting. And it, to me, it feels a lot like some artistic or creative outlet where you can build and write code that solves some problem or build and write code that is, you know, creating some creative, some creative output. So I think I absolutely code outside of work. It waxes and wanes for sure. But depending on the year, you can probably go look at the GitHub squares. But like, yeah, if if we were to add up all the time outside of work, I think, you know, it's probably more than people would say is healthy. <laughs> but it's definitely, definitely something that I enjoy doing, especially when I kind of find or start working on a project that I'm really, really interested in. So if I've, if I'm building a, you know, like a side project or if I'm building a side hustle or whatever, and I get really, really into it, then I can easily sink like 20 hours on a weekend into something also come out on the other end feeling like really energized and like I had a ton of fun. Yeah. So I don't know. I think this is the tricky one. And that's probably where that meme is coming from too, is though. I think that some people believe like that it's not a good sign that like if a recruiter's expecting that you spend your weekends building side projects or that like, cause a lot of people don't have the time or the energy, right? They might not have the ability to do this. And that doesn't make you a bad programmer. I I would say like, for me, I actually noticed this when I was reading the survey, like in my current job, I don't always code every single day. Like there'll definitely be meeting heavy days and then I'll have my kind of flow productive days. But like at the end of the day, I cannot code like right now, like I'm just in a phase right now. And maybe this is just more of like this season is not the season for side projects and side coding, but it's like by the time the day is over, I am spent. I need to get away from a screen. Mm -hmm. I need to go out and do stuff. And that way I can come back and do it again tomorrow. And that doesn't, I'm not feeling like burnt out by any means. It's just, I know that if I also went home and sat in front of a screen again and did some more code, I would get burnt out. And Mm -hmm. so I'm okay with that right now. I'm like trying to like, just say, I don't need, I have all these ideas. I've got lots of things, right? (laughs) We all do, but they don't need to be done right now. And I'm okay giving that energy to to my job right now. Um, And, but when I was, you know, more like when I was running the coworking space, I was tinkering with, you know, all sorts of APIs for Google calendars and door locks and stuff because it it was like a tool. And for me, it's kind of like DIY, like working around the house or whatever. It's like, I have a hammer that I know how to use Mm -hmm. and this can be good or bad, right? It's like, okay, now everything is going to be a code solution, but Mm -hmm. you, you don't have to go out and look for an app when you can maybe like wire together some APIs and things. And that can be really fun. I think for me playing with Mm -hmm. APIs is the most fun, but I do think, like you said, like, I'm a lawyer. I'm not going to be writing contracts for, you know, acquisitions on the weekend. So why do I expect this from, from a software developer? And I think, you know, if you're trying to learn, it is a great way to learn. If you're trying to level up, I think they, like they said in this survey, like how are people up leveling, going literally from levels to levels and increasing their salaries? Like, does that require this on the side or is there a way to carve this out at work? so that you're doing your learning at work. I know like at Orbit, if someone has a goal of learning something, the engineering manager is like, put it on your calendar. Don't make it a side project, put it on the table. If it's reading an hour in the morning to start your day, whatever it looks like, like that's Mm -hmm. good because it's going to make you better. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's important to 
make sure that people don't think that they have to like be always on 100% programmer to make it in this industry. Yeah, I, that is a great point. And uh, yeah, I, I've definitely been in phases where after work, there's I cannot write another line of code. I do not want to see it. And I've also had phases where it's like work for eight or nine hours writing code, go have dinner and then come back and write eight or nine more hours of code for like three months straight, you know, like building all of these little side hustles and side projects and doing contracts and wherever. Yeah. Like just really getting, getting into flow and loving it. But yeah, it, I think like you said, yeah, you'll go through seasons and it's not a hard requirement to be good. I also, sometimes when I think about it too, I think like, obviously at the end of those second shift, <laughs> like eight hour sessions, I would be hitting bugs where I'm like, what is going on here? And it would be something so, so trivial. And then you just go to sleep, you wake up, you're like, okay, I was obviously like way burnt out and like well beyond the, not the Balmer curve, but whatever the curve is that it's you need to sleep. tired burnt. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, that can be, that can be bad too, but I don't know. I think, oh, right. Coming back to this like concept of the 10,000 hours or whatever, right? Like in order to become an expert, you kind of like got to put in the, got to put in the hours. And so for some people, they want to front load that and like learn as much as they can early, early in their career and then start to smooth it out. For other people, it, it's more of a, you know, a marathon where you want to make a career out of this and you know you're going to be in this for 15, 20 years. And so you can kind of pace it out. This kind of brings us to another part of the survey that I thought was pretty interesting. And that is the like years of coding question where it's like, how many years have you been writing code? and why I think this is interesting is because I wonder, like, are people OK? So first of all, if you look at the graph, it peaks out at about 30 percent of the people responding have between five and nine years of experience, 20 percent with one to four and then around 20 percent with 10 to 10 to 14. And so I'm like, OK, people are peaking around like nine years. Right. <laughs> and then yeah. what are they doing after that? Right. If you like people learn to code, they put in all this effort to learn how to code <laughs> online or whatever through books. And then they only spend nine years doing it. Whereas maybe going back to the lawyer analogy, right. If you become a lawyer, you might be a lawyer for like 60 years or I don't know, not 60, 40 years and then retire. So. But you also had to do all your learning front loaded, like in a very extreme way, right? It's like, true. yeah, okay, very extreme true. and very expensive. My brother went to law school and I think he's got some regrets when he looks at like programming. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> I won't speak for him. Maybe we'll have him on one day to talk about the difference between programming and lawyers, since that's not a, an area I thought that we would compare to. But it's, <laughs> yeah, there's it, again, I think go and look at the survey and kind of interpret it and kind of put yourself in it. If you didn't participate in the survey, like just look at it, see if it kind of matches what you expect reality to look like, or if there's some surprises for yourself. Cause I think you definitely found some of the more fun things. I think when we start getting into programming languages, you mentioned like how far down the list, some of the most commonly used programming languages are JavaScript is pretty much at the top of the list. And I love that Ruby was like 50% loved and 50% dreaded. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to frame it like loved and dreaded. So yeah, in the survey, I don't actually remember how they asked these questions. Do you? I, I don't either, but yeah. because I think that might've changed how people interpret it. But like, cause I love how they're like, this one is the most, there's, I think there was a programming tool that was like the most the highest paying, but it was also the most dreaded. I think it was yeah. chef. 
Chef was yeah. the highest paying but most dreaded tool. So clearly, like they're trying to get a, a sense of like what do people like to work with versus what do they have to work with and what do they dread. I'm going to actually pull yeah. it up in another window here. It's also super interesting to see how much things pay, right? Because if you look at tech stacks, the, you know, Rails is pretty far down the list in terms of the tech stacks that people prefer. But then when you look at the highest paying tech stacks, Rails is number two. So mm -hmm. that's like, I don't know, it's, I think that's pretty interesting, especially depending on what you're trying to optimize for. So, well, without looking at it, what would you have guessed the high, the most loved language would have been? The most loved language? I would have guessed JavaScript. And would you have been surprised to hear Rust as the answer? Y yes. Because how many people are even using Rust? Like that, I, I guess, is the bigger part of this. Like, it does have the number of responses for each of these. So, like, for example, TypeScript had 18,000 responses, whereas Rust only had 5,746. So I don't know if there's a way to see this. This is by percentage of responses, I think. But even like Rust, Elixir, Clojure, TypeScript, Julia, like, we still haven't hit, you know, I guess we got a little bit of JavaScript in there. Python comes in at 67% loved versus 32% dreaded. But again, Ruby is literally down in the bottom here with the yeah. middle 50-50. Yeah. And then on the very bottom, we got MATLAB and COBOL. <laughs> so, yeah, like from my experience, which is limited, I've done like Hello World in Rust and Hello World Plus a little bit with Elixir. And I definitely preferred Elixir over Rust. And so part of me is wondering like, okay, nobody has written, well, very, very few people have written every single one of these languages, number one. Number two, like the communities are probably going to have different resources. So this this only really represents those developers who are on Stack Overflow, engaged right. on Stack Overflow. And so there's a chance that there's languages on here that are misrepresented because they're much easier to use and maybe you don't end up going to Stack Overflow for answers. And so right. we're over indexing on <laughs> why you would go to Stack Overflow. Well, I think, okay, so part of me, thinks that Stack Overflow plays, obviously it plays a very, very important role in all programming, right? You, that's where you're gonna go when you have your questions. But I also know that Stack Overflow is built with .NET and early in my career as a .NET dev, when Stack Overflow was just starting out, I remember using it heavily and there being a lot of C-sharp and .NET question and answer. And so part of me wonders is the .NET representation of like the answers here skewed a little bit because more .NET devs are using Stack Overflow or or is this yeah like a pretty pure yeah I don't know I, I mean I would even say that like for IDEs like I would say the one of the more surprising things is how fast Visual Studio Code has like rocketed to yeah. like the most used tool NeoVim was the highest by one percent more but Visual Studio Code like who would have thought like I use Visual Studio forever ago, but like, mm -hmm. that Microsoft would be the one to release the IDE that everyone on, you know, is using on the Mac and on the PC. And, you know, obviously they bought GitHub as well, which gave them Atom, which looked very similar. To, and I think they had kind of absorbed that. But it is fun to kind of see all the different tools there. It's just it's so interesting to think about like what what bias might exist in this. They do have a methodology section, and mm -hmm. I don't know if they go into the the stack overflow bias here at all but 
you know, it's, it's like, if you hang out in places where people like to geek out about rust, like, of course, rust is going to be the top one, but it's similar to when we talk about, you mentioned highest paying technologies. Like we see what we, we are, we're a rails shop at orbit and some people, like I see a lot of job openings for rails, but then Mm -hmm. you hear people saying like rails is dying rails is old rails is slow like you hear all these things and it's also productive it's also like there's all these other things that people don't write those like thought leadership pieces about because it's Mm -hmm. just they're busy writing code and being productive i guess but yeah yeah i think one of the things so just yesterday i was watching some of the talks from jamstack conf from 2021 and the um, the creator of Svelte, Rich Harris, right? Yeah, Rich Harris, the creator of Svelte, was talking about these new, this new type of like front-end Jamstack application that Svelte sort of embodies, and that is something that can pass server-rendered HTML, uh, or it can render on the client, or it can be like partially rendered on the client. And there's all these like really, really interesting technologies that are happening in the Jamstack ecosystem and with front end frameworks in general with like Next and server side rendering and SvelteKit and Remix and all of these different tools on the front end. And he was kind of bagging on Rails a little bit saying like, oh, Hotwire has X, Y, and Z issues. And like, if you look on GitHub and he was able to point out like, here is some jank that you find on GitHub because GitHub is built with Rails and using Hotwire that you would not have if you were to build like this high fidelity Jamstack app, basically. And so part of me, number one, wonders like, like obviously Svelte is pretty high on the list of web frameworks, but also are people saying that Rails is dead because it's falling behind in terms of the trends that are happening on the front end? But then I also question like things like Remix are coming out where a lot of your tooling is server-side rendered HTML going back to the web browser basics and really kind of embracing like all of the standard HTTP stuff like, okay, yeah, you put a form and you have an action in the form that, which specifies right. the route to which you're going to send your post request. And like, it's just going to use the names on your inputs and pass those back to the server and use kind of like all the things that we would have oh, used. A, a Rails cycle. Or, exactly. It's a giant <laughs> cycle. Yeah. And so I am kind of curious to see how that waxes and wanes over time. Obviously, it doesn't feel as sexy, right? Like the using Remix is, is I'm, I'm so, so glad that Remix is kind of like making it cool again to use standard web fundamentals because it wasn't sexy to just be like, okay, this is a boring app that's just written with HTML and has like these server rendered routes that right. are just going to spit back HTML or put stuff in the database or pull things out of the database. So. Yeah, they didn't get into it in the survey, but I think like the next level is even just standard web components. Like I got exposed to those through Shopify and it's like, I don't have to include any JavaScript, right? I mean, I have access to whatever is built into the browser. I don't have to use React. I don't have to worry about what this is. This Mm -hmm. is the thing that I'm in, right? All these kinds of things are really interesting. And I haven't played with Svelte, but what you just talked about is making me want to go play with Svelte a little bit mm-hmm. and just see how that works. Because I have also haven't touched Hotwire or or any of those things in Rails yet, but I know we use some of that at Orbit, and it's been interesting to see like how much of this is us geeking out on tools and how much of it is like helps us ship stuff better yeah. and faster and maintain it. All of that, like how does, easy is it to onboard a mm-hmm. new member? Which actually, I think there was a conversation about that 
in here, which is just like, how easy is it to find answers to things? How easy, what's like the perceived time to onboard? And a lot of people are like, yeah, if it, it always takes longer than, than the company thinks it's going to take for me to onboard, which I think is important. Like if you're joining a new team and you feel like you don't understand what's going on, like existing code bases are hard. Your team may or may not have a good onboarding flow. It's not necessarily your fault. Give the feedback and maybe even use the survey to prove that that's the case for most people, that it's not mm -hmm. just you. When you when you onboarded at Orbit, how long did it take? Like how long did it take and how long did you, were you sort of told like, okay, we've allotted two months for you to get up to speed or like two weeks for you to be like shipping your first stuff or whatever. What was that experience? Like? I was joining kind of at like transitional time. So they were trying to figure that out. And I think, you know, most teams, it's probably likely that's the case when most people join anything. They're like, oh, we're changing some stuff, you know, and there, when I first joined, I found a document that was like a 30, 60, 90 plan. Never really had to follow that though, because that kind of stopped being adopted. What was more interesting to me was like once I had all my accounts and had access to everything it was just like world building in my head like I got to build up what do we use when do we use it how does this code work it becomes what is important for me to know to do the ticket that is my first ticket you know was this mm -hmm. first ticket even designed to be an onboarding ticket or was it just like thrown in the deep end type of thing mm -hmm. and like I was actually thinking about this the other day because I was working on a piece of code that when I first joined I was like I do not even understand what this why this is even in here like what is it doing why is it so complicated and now it's like i'm refactoring that because i really understand what it's doing and i know that like actually i think it was like rubocop specifically said this thing is too complicated now you can't mm -hmm. commit and i was like all right we're gonna fix it because i knew it was complicated when i joined i didn't understand it then so like is every new engineer gonna look at this and be like i don't know how to code because mm -hmm. I don't understand this thing. It's like, no, it's, it was written in a way that could be made better. It had to do with devise and Omnioth and all that fun stuff. But like, it is really fun when you, I don't know if you've felt this, but there's almost like a light switch moment where you've just been in a code base for a certain amount of time. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, I understand where things are, where the, how they work. Whereas like a few days ago, it might've been like you were in another country, not mm -hmm. speaking the language. <laughs> Yeah, I think it definitely depends on the size of the code base, the fin like familiarity with the language, right? Like I think when I started at when I started at my VR, I didn't know any Python and we were building a Django app with an Angular front end. I never worked with Angular and I never worked with Python. And so it was like, okay, you have to learn this giant code base that oh, at the at the time I think it had over a million lines of code. You also have to learn Python, you also have to learn Angular <laughs> and like the business and the people and the processes and the whatever. And while I was fixing bugs, probably in the first couple of weeks, I definitely was not like productive in terms of adding like massive features or being able to pull my own weight for three to six months. And this is something that we tell people that join our team at Stripe too, is like, yeah, like uh, when you join, we expect the bandwidth of the team to go down. Like there's going to be negative output based on you joining because we all need to work together as a team to bring you up to speed mm -hmm. and like answer any question that you have and make sure that you feel fully supported and enabled so that you can get off on a good foot. So yeah, I think if you're joining a new team or if you're just starting out as a junior dev, like don't feel bad if you're not, you know, crushing it in your first couple of weeks, like I would say. Yeah. 
three well and months. like uh, an onboarding document is only going to get you so prepared right it's yeah. shadowing you know the teammates it's asking questions it which i think you know brings up some of the other questions around remote a lot of people surveyed here again this is going to be skewed based on stack overflow but 85% of organizations are at least partially remote, which I think changes a lot of this stuff. I think the other one that I wrote down, that, which I thought was key to Stack Overflow, was that more than 60% of the developers surveyed, and I, I collapsed a bunch of the options. It was basically the 30 to 120 minutes a day spent looking for answers, right? So that means that at a minimum, I, I would say more. It, the, most of the people were spending at least an hour. So if you have an eight-hour workday, one hour is chalked up to just looking for an answer to something. You might have a meeting, you might have a stand-up. So like already you're starting to see the day get whittled away. You know, and when I've talked to my engineering manager, we we kind of talked about like I used to be really productive at nighttime and I would mm -hmm. get all I would like do my meetings during the day, kind of slack off during the day, maybe take some long lunch, do some errands. And because I'm remote, I'm gonna work at night and I get so much done at night. Mm -hmm. Right. And we really had to think like, okay, why can't we get work done during the day? Like we need mm -hmm. to fix this. And you learn a little bit of like the remote work hygiene of like setting statuses and turning off alert alerts and putting on headphones and all that kind of stuff so that you can just get into your state. Cause I would prefer to not have to work at night. Right. And I've mm -hmm. figured out ways of having maybe like no meeting days or no meeting afternoons, whatever that looks like. So that that's flow time and making sure that like, I know that some of that time is still going to be spent reading docs, looking mm -hmm. for answers, maybe even talking to the team, but that, you know, again, you're not going to be writing code for eight hours a day. Like it's just impossible. Yep. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It's, it's unrealistic too, to believe that you can write code for eight hours a day and it come out in any valuable state, Yeah. <laughs> like without it being yeah something that takes a long time to parse or get merged or whatever, especially like if you're collaborating and you need to like work through PRs, whatever. There yeah. was one last thing that I wanted to like one last question on here that I thought was super surprising. And then I think we could wrap it up. Hugging face transformers was the number one most loved library. And I, before reading the survey and like Googling this, I had never heard of this. <laughs> so I was like, what the, <laughs> what is hugging face transformers? And so what I gather from the website, huggingface.co is that it is built the AI community building the future. So it's like a community of models and machine learning tools for building some like AI stuff. But I don't know. Had you heard you can of tell like You can tell that we do not do this stuff as we try <laughs> to explain it. I had not yeah. heard of it and I did Google it as well because it stuck out in the list. What I love about this is that it brings some of the fun and joy of like what we used to see in the early days of Ruby to AI, right? This idea, like, I don't know the origin of why it's called Hugging Face. I'm sure there is one. We'll have to look for it. If you know about this and you're listening out there, we'd love to talk more about this because this is like a whole area of the internet and programming that I know nothing about, right? And I know models and machine learning and AI are getting really popular. You have people sharing all these like dolly generated photos and things. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this has anything to do with that, if we don't even know what we're talking about, but it does look like it's Transformers for PyTorch, TensorFlow, and Jax. So those are all three things I've never used before, but I love the fun to it. There's another link that I'll post in the show notes that I loved, which is just like, why is the internet not fun and weird anymore? Everything's kind of becoming <laughs> yeah. like this, like Facebook's starting to look like Instagram and Instagram's looking like this other thing and everything's just becoming 
like either everything looks like bootstrap and tailwind and not like the old GeoCities MySpace, like explore, blink, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. So how do we make the internet fun and weird again? Again, there might be a reason why this is called, I don't know if you found it, why this is called what it's called, but it looks like it might be something we might have to play with. Yeah, I did not figure out what it's called. Right before we recorded this podcast, though, I hosted a Twitter space with Mike Bifolco, who is another developer advocate at Stripe, and he is working on this thing called speechwriter.ai, which is a tool that'll let you write like best man speeches or inauguration speeches or things like this, where it's using OpenAI, which is another tool that uses or that has like GPT-3 yeah. which is some other model. And so there's like some API, you basically like ask it questions and then it will do some fancy machine learning thing and then spit back some answers. But yeah, hugging face transforms looks <laughs> like it's related in some way. So we'll have to play yeah, with we'll, it. We'll have to dig into that one and come back to it in the future. But awesome. Yeah. So yeah, that's the 2022 Stack Overflow Developer Survey. Definitely take a look at it. We'll put a link in the show notes. If there's anything that you want to see us talk about in future episodes, definitely hit us up on Twitter. My Twitter is at Colin Loretz. We'll put it in the show notes. And what is yours, CJ? Mine's at CJEV underscore dev. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening. Really appreciate your time and attention. All right. We'll see you next week.